liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe What's up, you Liberty Lockdowners? This is Clint Russell here. I have a double dip show for you. Thrilling, thrilling guest list of Austin Peterson. He ran for the presidency on the Libertarian ticket in 2016. Uh, got fairly close. Uh, brilliant guy. And then, as always, we have our drop-in from Judge Andrew Napolitano, my hero and yours. It's a banger of an episode. Before I get into that, I wanted to cover one news article which one of my listeners sent to me saying, please cover this on the show. I haven't even read it yet. We're going to see if it's any good. I have no idea. Uh, maybe I'll cut this if it's not if it's not entertaining. But uh, I'm off to Porkfest, so I hope to see a bunch of you guys there. Uh, I'm going to be putting this out a couple days after I actually record. So I may be there right now, and you may be there too, which how weird is that? You might be listening to me while you see me in the field or whatever exists at Porkfest. I've never been before. Um, before we get started in tonight's show, I want to thank one of our sponsors, which is the Expat Money Show. I've had Mikkel Thorup on the show before. He is a wizard. This guy knows everything there is to know about expatriation. And for those that don't know, expatriation is the idea of leaving the country, giving up your citizenship, and finding greener pastures, more liberty abroad. It's not for everybody, obviously, um, but for those that are interested in just learning more, highly recommend you check out the Expat Money Show. You can go to expatmoneyshow.com or you can check them out on YouTube. I will have the link in the description for this ep episode, expatmoneyshow.com. All right, let's get into the silly article. I can't imagine that it's good, but all right. Well, it's from the Washington Post, so you know what? It's going to be upsetting. Uh, seven ways you can financially prepare for a recession. If a recession is inevitable, here are some financial moves you can make to prepare. First off, don't ever read the Washington Post if you're trying to prepare for a recession. That's, <laughs> that's a little addition I'll add to this. So they say inflation is at a 40-year high, interest rates are rising, and gas prices have hit a frightening $5 a gallon. Stock market is taking investors on a roller coaster ride with terrifying drops. Even if you haven't looked lately, you know that the value of your retirement account is down. Cryptocurrencies are crashing, not surprisingly. It's interesting that they make it sound as if the stock market's on a roller coaster ride, but cryptocurrencies are crashing. Uh, excuse me, the stock market has also crashed. And now you're hearing that we may be in a recession or one is inevitable. Yeah, we are in a recession and it's also inevitable. Thank you, kind writer. You remember the Great Recession and how harsh it was for so many? So telling you to calm down or that this too shall pass doesn't address the anxiety you're feeling about your financial well-being. Well, thank you, paternalistic bitch. It's okay that you don't feel things are okay. Uh, but what you shouldn't do is make moves based on recessionary fears that can put you in a worse position financially. Recessions don't last forever. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, on average, recessions last 11 months. This one will last longer. I can assure you of that. According to Lindsay Bell, chief market and money strategist for Ally, the shortest recession on record is the 2020 pandemic-induced recession, which lasted just three months. And it only required us to print $7 trillion to get out of it. So let's just throw $20 trillion at this one. We'll be fine. See, they don't understand. First off, let me just add that they don't understand why this is different. You already have inflation. You have inflation with a crashing economy. You can't flood the zone with capital like you did in 2020. This isn't fucking complicated. Here are seven tips to pr protect yourself whether a recession is coming or not. It is coming. There is no not. <clears throat> Don't be afraid of a bear market. You may not even know what a bear market is, but you're primed to be petrified of one. This week, the S&P 500 index slid into a bear market, which is defined as 20% drop from a recent high. The average duration of a bear market since 1950 is roughly 418 days, according to Anthony Saglamdeen, global market strategist for Ameriprise Financial. Just shift your view a little bit and look at this as an opportunity if you're a longer-term investor. Yeah, easier said than done, as if so many people are just sitting on cash, right? Focus on companies that have strong balance sheets, strong cash flow, and products that consumers are using and need 
he suggested. Healthcare and consumer staple companies have often done well in recessionary environments because people need their products, regardless of the economic environment. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of boring. Sorry, guys. It's a good time to take advantage of dollar cost averaging, which means you invest the same amount of money regard uh, regularly, regardless of the ups and downs in the market. Although stocks are taking a beating right now, historically, they recover well after a recession. If you don't have exposure to stocks, you miss the eventual recovery. Yeah, but if you don't have exposure to stocks, you also miss the crash. Idiots. If you have the, the cash to put to work today, this is a good time to talk to an advisor and figure out what a good dollar cost averaging strategy could be over time. Yeah. Can't miss those huge ups. All right. Don't try to time the market. Oh, yeah. Great advice. A lot of folks may want to get out of the stock market or reduce what they're investing until things get better. That is the def definition of trying to time the market. It's impossible to know the best time to get out and when to jump back in. Oh, well, I've been saying for the past two years that it's going to be a really, really high probability that you're going to have lower entry points into both crypto and the stock market. So it's impossible to know. Most people, most mere mortals are not able to time the markets. Oh, well, I'm not mortal then, said uh, Mark Hamrick, senior economic analyst for Bankrate.com. Even Warren Buffett would admit that. Once we reach the low point in the bear market, stock returns for the S&P 500 tend to be above average. One of the things we always coach investors and advisors to do is when you're in the throes of either a recession or in a bear market, you don't want to make outsized allocation adjustments until the dust settles. If you are properly diversified, you're weathering the storm. The worst thing an investor could do right now is to try to time the market bottom. It's not the worst thing. Oh, what are they? How could you even say that? No, the worst thing would, you know, to be in tether. That would be the worst thing. Duh. Uh, and also, if you're properly diversified, what does properly mean? There's no way to be properly diversified. You don't know how the market's going to collapse. Oftentimes, being in bonds would have been properly diversified historically, and yet bonds have been annihilated recently. So... Oh, this is all such bad advice. Get rid of your credit card debt now. Job number one for anyone with a credit card is to pay off their balance as soon as possible. When a recession may be on the way and interest rates are rap rising rapidly, it's even more important. Well, yeah, unless the dollar is dying, in which case you want to take on as much debt as possible and purchase cryptocurrency while it's in a bear market. But that would be very risky. So I'm not advising that. It's just like... I love that they, you know, they don't ever say that when we're leading up to a crash. They don't say, get rid of your credit card debt now. They say, oh, spend, borrow, whatever. It doesn't matter. One way to tackle the debt is to get a low interest personal loan or sign up, or you just pay it off, or sign up for a balance transfer credit card. You can dig out of the debt a lot faster if you if you transfer high interest debt to a credit card with a 0% rate. Oh, no shit. If you lower the interest rate on your debt, uh, it's better. Genius. If you can't qualify for a 0% credit card, call your current credit issuer and ask for an interest rate reduction. Uh, about 70% of people who asked for one in the last year got one, but far too people ask. Oh, well, that also has to do with the fact that we were in a pandemic and they had all these uh, laws and regulations that were preventing all, all sorts of debt collections. So that's not really applicable moving forward. But anyways, <clears throat> stockpile savings. Save while you have the extra money because a recession could quickly change your circumstances. If you don't have a good emergency fund, consider canceling a vacation or putting off an expensive renovation project that isn't necessary. For many people right now, the inflation problem is akin to an emergency. You don't want to have to resort to debt if you lose your job or because your wages aren't keeping up with historically high inflation, he said. Also consider that the standard advice of having three to six months worth of living expenses may not be enough. Yeah, no shit. It makes sense for workers to right-size their emergency reserves based on their own situations. Younger workers may have more flexibility in their lifestyle to get a roommate or two <laughs> or switch career paths to take advantage of new job opportunities. So their emergency reserves can run closer to that three to six months worth of living expenses uh, recommendation. But if you're an older worker and can't change your housing situation and or you're in a highly paid specialized position and replacing your income could take longer if you lose your job, err on the side of having a year's worth of savings or assets you can easily liquidate. Yeah, it's like, why give this advice when we're already suffering. This is great advice two years ago when I was giving it. It's pretty shitty advice. It's just like irritating advice now because the vast majority of people, if I were to say, oh, well, dude, you got to pay off your debt and you got to accumulate a year's worth of savings right now while your rent and your food is all up 40% or whatever, uh, you're going to look at me and be like, dude, I can't do that. And I'll be like, 
yeah, I know, but you should do it anyways. Like, oh, what kind of advice is this? It's crazy. Um, obviously, if you can do it, you should, but the vast majority of people are very much paycheck to paycheck right now, if not living off credit cards. So, you know, establish a backup to your emergency fund in addition to having recession rainy, rainy day fund. Ben's recommends figuring out where you might go for additional funds if you need them in a pinch. Okay. Home equity line of credit can make sense in this context, and it's best to obtain it when you're employed and most likely to qualify. That is true. Don't under, don't underestimate the power of having bonds in your retirement portfolio. <laughs> Typically, when stocks are down, bond balances out your stock holdings, but bond prices have been hit as well. Yeah, no shit. Still, in previous recessions, bonds have held up better than nearly all other market segments. Oh, this is terrible advice. It's like historically bonds perform or bonds outperform. Well, bonds have been performing horrendously because we're in a continuous hiking cycle from the Federal Reserve with promised additional increases over the remainder of this year going into next year. You do not want to be in the bond market right now. I'm sorry. That is terrible advice. In other words, don't throw them overboard because they're not performing well right now. I am. They're overboard. They're drowning. <laughs> They're an essential portfolio ingredient, especially for people who are in or getting close to retirement. Yes, tell people to invest in bonds in a nation that could be on the verge of defaulting on its debt because you're close to retirement. Oh, don't just, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. These people, they're like, I don't even know what this person's qualifications are, but I assure you they suck. They suck at their job. This is just terrible. It's like, boil it's all of this advice is predicated on old information, old historical, like boilerplate financial planner responses. Like you have to evolve with the times. If you're going to many, uh, you know, money, manage money. These people, if they're actively managing money, they are, they are terror. I mean, th they are risking their investors capital, like flatly. They are absolutely they should be fired. Uh, get a side gig. Many employers are begging for workers. There are a record number of job openings with the unemployment rate at 3.6%. The economy saw job gains and transportation, blah, 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 blah. But there is obviously a risk that unemployment could rise. No shit. Even if you don't need the money right now, it may be a good time to get a second job or find work in the gig economy to boost your income and savings. Now's the time to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Well, I don't know if that was entertaining or not. I apologize if it wasn't. I, uh... It gave me a, an opportunity to, you know, correct some of that stellar information and advice they were giving you. I, uh, I do think that we're in tremendous, tremendous economic strife right now for a lot of people. And <clears throat> my personal prediction is remains that I think uh, if they proceed with those interest rate hikes six months from now, real, real, real problems, real, 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 real problems. If they relent, they increase QE. Um, if they, you know, start to lower interest rates again, well, that delays the day of reckoning. It wouldn't delay the day of inflation. Inflation would still hurt us badly, but in terms of asset deflation because of the hiking interest rate cycle, they could delay the day of reckoning in that a little bit. So stay frosty, stick with me, like, comment, subscribe, do all that, hit the bell. Uh, so that you don't miss my analysis as things develop, because I, as I've explained many times, this is a, the economy moves in relatively slow waves. Obviously, there's some bang moments, but they're few and far between. And I'm going to have to continue to analyze things as it develops to give you the most update, up-to-date information. And I think what I'm best at is identifying bottoms. So when I see something that I think is like, okay, now's the time, like in housing, and I'm telling you, in 2009-10, when everyone was telling you not to touch housing, I was telling everyone in my life to go buy housing. Everyone. I was like, go, 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 go. Almost no one did. Very, very frustrating. Um, but I will try and do the same. This go around. None of this is financial advice, but I will say what I intend to do. And then you can decide if you want to follow or do what you want. I don't care. Anyways, let's get into tonight's show. It's a banger, double-dipped, Judge Andrew DiPolitano. Austin Peterson. Don't miss it. Enjoy. Welcome everybody back again. You know what day it is. It must be Thursday. Nope. It's actually Friday. But anyways, I'm still thrilled to have on Judge Andrew Napolitano, the host of Judging Freedom. Thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, pleasure, my dear man. Thank you. And thanks for accommodating <laughs> my crazy schedule. 
Oh, no, please. Uh, my schedule is getting progressively more insane as as this all of this stuff uh, seems to be taking off a little bit. So I we didn't normally we come in with some idea of what we're going to talk about today. I just wanted to kind of brainstorm with you on the cultural war that we're in, um, you know, from a libertarian vantage point, it's this is probably the hardest thing for us to deal with because or maybe the easiest, depending on how you how you look at it. Uh, but there's a clear cultural battle that's happening between the progressive movement and more of the conservative, oftentimes Christian. Uh, just I don't I don't really know how to address this from a libertarian vantage point because ultimately, like I want to allow the progressives to live how they want, but unfortunately, because we have this state apparatus that forces so much of their propaganda into the youth in this country, it seems as if, if we do not fight back, we are kind of doomed. Uh, so what do you think? Well, I think you, uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said youth, because you're, you're referring to government schools, which of course the, the government prefers to call public schools, but they're government schools. Uh, there shouldn't be government schools in this country. They are a waste of taxpayer dollars. Uh, government schools have guaranteed clients no competition and guaranteed income. That's a recipe for failure. They have income, tax dollars, whether they work or not. They have the children as, as cl clients or customers, whether they teach or not. And they really have no effective competition because so much, the, the taxes are so high that go to the public schools that the folks who have children do not have the cash left to send them to a private institution. They're instruments of indoctrination, and they indoctrinate things like Lincoln was a great president. He was the greatest president ever. Uh, government is good. The police are honorable and should be uh, trusted. The, the type of big government nonsense that, that the schools, the public schools, see, I slipped. The government schools have been indoctrinating people, and since they started in the Woodrow Wilson era uh, more than 100 years ago, there's no reason to force somebody to go through uh, 12 years of schooling if they don't need it. The parents should be able to choose. Your kid wants to become a truck driver, okay, he goes to this school, he learns the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, your kid wants to be a doctor, okay, he goes to this public school, which specializes in getting kids into Yale. Your kid wants to fix um, uh, um, air conditioners, he goes to this school. Your kid wants to be a farmer, he goes to that school. The schools would compete with each other for their services. You know, I live a novel out novel idea. <laughs> God, I live out in the sticks, a northwest tip of New Jersey, maybe to the Midwest. That's not the sticks. I'm 75 miles uh, from New York City. There's very small local government here. There are no Democrats here. The Republicans are corrupt, not in the sense that they take bribes, but in the sense that they have nobody to challenge them to, to, to check their behavior. So when my tax bill arrives, what am I being taxed for? Public school. I don't send kids to the school. Garbage. I get rid of my own garbage. Plowing the streets. The guys that work on my farm plow the streets in front of my house. What do I get? So I once said to the mayor, who, who has a libertarian streak in him, he's a, he's a pig farmer. A pig farmer. I love it. But he's been the mayor of this little town for 40 years. And I said to him, you know, how about if you and, and I won't give you the name of it, the next town over, compete with each other for my tax dollars? Who can give me the biggest bang for the buck? He said, I've never heard such a communist idea in my life. I said, communist? It's the most capitalistic thing you've ever heard. Competition. See how the government can sour the brain of a conservative uh, Republican. Oh, I know this guy. He believes in small government. Uh, but he believes in government. I don't. You don't. The people listening to us now, Clint, don't. So one of the first things I would do in my in my world would be to get rid of uh, the government school system. And you will see schools popping up on every street corner, catering to the needs of children and their parents. And I'll tell you something you won't see. Teaching girls, you don't need a penis to be a boy. You won't see any of that crap. Yeah. Unless for some strange reason the parents wanted their kids to go to a school that teaches them about transitioning at age five. 
I think San Francisco would probably still have that on offer, but um, I, I mean, this is this is well, and and I just wanted to add one additional point: the government schools are also where they are taught, uh, where the children are taught that all of our warfare ism has been heroic, and that it's Correct. you know, and Correct. it should be they, they perpetuated. Are, they are taught a a form of uh, of militarism, yeah. the the adulation uh, of the military. I um, I walked by, um, I drove by not far from here, a couple of miles, a Veterans of Foreign Wars facility. I know these people. Sometimes I go to parties there. They're basically the salt of the earth. I wouldn't vote for a Democrat if their lives depended on it. But it was Memorial Day, and I saw row after row after row of school-age children in front of this building listening to pabulum about all the great wars these people have fought. Yep. I mean, Murray Rothbard said the last moral war the Americans fought was to secede from Great Britain. You could make an argument that our resistance to the Nazis was just and moral. Of course, we aligned ourselves with the power, the Soviets, just as unjust, just as immoral as the Nazis. So I don't really want to get into that. But sure. to, to uh, idolize people in military uniforms just because they wear the uniforms. They were duped into believing, like, like the Russian soldiers in Ukraine, you're going to be liberators. The American soldiers were duped into these wars. George Bush himself couldn't get it out of his mouth about whether uh, Afghanistan was brought by one strong-headed, unjust person, even though it was an, an, an illegal war. He confused his own war with Putin's. <laughs> that, that was amazing. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think... As, as usual, we do have answers, but it's not that they can actually get implemented in this current no, environment. No, you're right. The issue. You're not, so, not going to get rid of the government schools uh, tomorrow. I mean, it would take a revolution in the country. It would take the federal government collapsing, right? which I think will happen uh, before this century is over, because it won't, it, its money will be worthless. It won't be able to pay its bills, so nobody will work for it, just like the old Soviet Union. It'll collapse like an overripe apple. The country will break off into uh, different uh, republics, and maybe some republics will get rid of the public schools. I don't know. But yeah. it'll take something as radical as that or some miracle where you know 400 Thomas Masseys were elected to the yeah. House of Representatives and 67 were elected to the Senate, and one of them <laughs> was sent to the White House before this stuff could actually happen. Yeah. Which is is uh, probably not going to happen. So uh, the the reason I'm I'm getting so nervous about this stuff is like it seems to me that the natural pendulum swing will be the conservative right rising up in a way that demands state action to stop the progressive indoctrination and and when it comes to the you know even if it's like private businesses that are having uh, these trans shows or these uh, what's it called. I forget what the term of it is, but they're not trans, but they're just they're just cross-dressing uh, and they dance and they have kids. They like they have kid events to. And, and you know, I, I at first I thought this must be extraordinarily rare. But then it's I just see it's not that rare. And it's well, just like, what the York hell is, is happening? The city of New York is spending millions of dollars uh, on this. Look, when the government replaces the parent yeah. in the eyes and mind and moral acculturation of the child, that is very, very dangerous. Government has no morals. Government only does what it does to stay in power. And Justice Scalia used to say, you know, when you're when you're construing a statute, some uh, jurists will look at what members of Congress said about the statute at the time they voted for it to give an indication of what their intention was. Justice Scalia would always say, I don't care what they said about the statute and wh why they voted for it. They only vote for it for one reason. They only do everything for one reason, to get reelected. Well, the government is the same way. The government, everything it does is to stay in power. If it thought that these drag shows for five-year-olds would harm their staying in power, well, they'll be gone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, there's an area of human behavior which is not subject to majoritarian whims. And one of them is raising the morals and culture of your children. That's not me. It, I have to agree with it, 
But that's the Supreme Court of the United States in a case called Wisconsin against Yoder, which is the great case uh, involving a religious order that wanted to teach its children and keep them out of government schools. They lost all the way up in the state of Wisconsin. And the Supreme Court said, no, they can teach their kids how they want because the decision to bear and beget, to have and to raise children is the highest right there is. And that belongs to the parents, not to the government. I say highest right, aside from individual rights like, like life and, and thought and, and speech and property ownership. It's an extremely high right that the state can't interfere with, but yet it does. Why do we let it do it? Hmm. And, I, and I see, I think I tend to agree with that, that I would like to, I mean, obviously, since I'm an anarchist, I would prefer not to have the government telling people how to raise their kids or what to teach them. But I, I also, this is kind of where you get into the, you know, um, like, like statutory laws and protecting children from decisions that they can't make because they're just not mature enough. They're not adult enough. And, and I, you know, even as an anarchist, I still see value in those laws because it's like, it's like that, that seems to create a culture that I would prefer to live in. Uh, that's a very status mentality. I'll, I'll openly admit that. Um, but when it comes to this indoctrination push, I mean, you now have over 20% of children that are self-describing or self-labeling themselves as queer. So that means whatever, bi, trans, whatever. And, and I mean, historically, that's, that's extraordinarily high. So you have to imagine that there's a social contagion factor or a, a desire to fit in and this being kind of the in vogue thing to be. And I'm not sure that that's healthy. Uh, I, I mean, well, it's not healthy, but it, it, you know, a lot of conservative Republicans would want the government to, to teach the children a certain level of morals. But I, if they're going to be forced to go to government schools, they should learn traditional Judeo-Christian morality. They should also learn the non-aggression principle. Yeah, there you go. Full, uh, <laughs> uninitiated aggression is immoral and illicit and criminal and unconstitutional. Now, the government won't teach them that because the government's the biggest aggressor in the world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, well, it, the, the reason I have such an issue with this is that many of these kids, it's not, you know, I, I think that many of them will just grow out of it and they'll have a totally normal life and it's no big deal. Where, where I get very concerned is when it comes to the puberty blockers and the transitioning of, you know, almost prepubescent, some of them 13, 14, 15 years old. And that that gets really, really concerning to me. Well, Do we have an answer from a libertarian vantage point for those things? I don't know that children have reached the age of reason. I don't think point. so. But yeah. once they've reached the age of reason, it's none of the government's business. Agreed. Which is I loathe and, and detest from a personal moral point of view, from my traditional pre-Vatican II, old-fashioned Roman Catholicism, I condemn this, but I would condemn just as harshly the government's involvement in it when a person has reached the age of reason. Right. You want to butcher your body? I think it's repellent, but you have the right to do it. Mm -hmm. We got rid of the Inquisition 400 years ago. It's not coming back, I hope. Yeah, me too. Uh, so is that what do we do though when it comes to the 12 and like you have some that are eight or nine or 10 that they're starting to put on puberty blockers this is that a is that an arena where libertarians can actually come together and say look that needs to be illegal i think so i mean libertarians uh with a certain stream friends of ours whose name i won't mention <laughs> um because i love them except on this um Libertarians uh, understand that some people are incapable of defending their own natural rights, among which is the sanctity of the human body, and they haven't reached the age uh, of reason yet. And until they reach the age of reason, if the parents won't protect the body, then it's the duty of the state to do so. You know, here's a question for your, your listeners. What governmental authority is moral and lawful in the absence of full consent of the governed a government that defends natural rights mm -hmm. the natural right of the child is integrity over the body if that integrity is being assaulted by some creep uh, who claims to be a school teacher 
or some parent who doesn't give a damn, then it's the duty of the state to defend the integrity of that body until the owner of the body reaches the age of reason. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think in an ideal world, you would have a culture, a societal framework where neighbors and relatives and other people intervene and say, what are you doing? Your, your child is, they, they can't possibly know that this is a transitionary process that they should be entering at such a young age. And it's also not reversible and it's potentially, you know, tremendous side effects health-wise. But in the absence of a culture that actually is capable of doing that, you do end up relying on the state. And this is, for me, that's a very hard thing to look in the it face. Is. Because... It is a very hard thing to rely on the state for anything because yeah. the state only does two things well, staying in power and committing violence. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Everything, not, everything not, not a great option. No, no, it's not a great option at all. These are these are uh, profound uh, questions that you're asking. You know, we should have a panel of uh, three or four of us at the Mises Institute uh, at the end of July at Mises University discussing uh, these types of things because they really are brain stretchers. Yeah. If, if we did that, everybody in the room would be opposed to the state in principle and in theory. Right. Yet what is there left to protect a five-year-old whose parents don't know what's going on and whose lefty, loony, second-grade teacher is talking them into changing their gender? Exactly. I mean, this is... I mean, maybe, one of, uh, maybe some sort of... You're not going to believe what I'm about to say. Some sort of a regulation on doctors that they can't perform this surgery without the informed consent, knowing that the child is mature enough to ask for it and that the, the parents know that this... Is the yeah. case? I don't know uh, what yeah, the answer is. The churches maybe, maybe have no more authority uh, in this country. I mean, I'm Catholic. The churches are empty on uh, on Sundays. Um, the government slaughters allows the slaughter of babies in the womb. The government doesn't protect babies in a classroom or in a supermarket. These are reprehensible times. Yeah. And since the end of uh, since the FDR years, everything's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Nothing's gotten better. Yeah. At one year since FDR, one year when the federal government balanced its budget and didn't have to borrow money. Can you guess who that president was from FDR to Joe Biden? Uh, that, that was Bill Clinton, wasn't it? Bill Clinton. Yeah. How did he do it? By raising taxes retroactively. <laughs> <laughs> Which the Supreme Court let him do. <laughs> Well, you know, hey, at least at least we can find some some humor in the insanity, and I think I think that helps keeps us sane. Anyways, my you have patron, a heart. My patron Saint Saint Thomas more joked on his way to the scaffold. So yes, you have to have a sense of humor. Exactly, exactly. I'll laugh on my way to the gallows too. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining us again, Judge. It is a thrill every time we get to speak. Everybody, go subscribe to Judging Freedom. Anything else you would like to leave them with? Um, no, it's just that. Um, Keep an eye out. These are these are dark and dangerous times. Stick to yeah. first principles. If you stick to first principles, like the non-aggression principle, your argument will always make sense. Perfect. Great. Thank you, Clint. Great lesson. All the best. Thank you. Before we get into the part two with Austin Peterson, I want to thank our second sponsor for tonight's show, and that is careerhackers.com. Boy, if there was a better time for you to be preparing for uh second career, a revision of your existing career, a complete shift in your career path. Now, 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 now. Would have been better if you had done it a couple months ago. Still not the worst time. The worst time is going to be six months from now. So go to careerhackers.com, sign up for the daily job hunt. It's free, costs you nothing, and they will prepare you to stand out in the crowd to make yourself a better job applicant, and it's totally free. Careerhackers.com. Enjoy my interview with Austin Peterson. Welcome everybody to another special live, no, it's not live, uh, interview edition of Liberty Lockdown. I am joined by the 2016 Libertarian Party candidate for president, Mr. Otter, Austin Peterson. Welcome aboard, sir. Hey, Clint, thanks for having me on the show. That's a beautiful background. Are you living in the free state of Florida? I am in the free state of Florida. It's oh, not too man. bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm considering making an exodus myself there one day. You guys make it look really good. It's not quite Missouri <laughs> good, but it's good. It's it's not bad. It's definitely not bad. Unfortunately, I don't know tons of people here, so it's like it still feels very foreign. I was born and raised in San Diego, so this is I've only been here six oh. months, and I you know 
but I had to get out of California. Yeah, was, you did. You do had to get the hell did. out. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, at least it's a comparable climate. Yeah, no, it is. It's actually, it's, it's beautiful. The winter is actually even better in Miami than it is in, uh, in San Diego, if that, if, if that's even possible. Uh, so anyways, I wanted to, uh, start off. I had, uh, judge Andrew Napolitano on today. I asked him about this. I think it'll be an interesting pairing to have your take as well. I was basically framing it as how, how what is the libertarian response to cultural decay? Essentially, uh, you know, we don't believe in using state violence to implement or instill our will. Uh, I just don't have a great answer for this one. I, I struggle with it mightily. Obviously, when it comes to kids, uh, you know, you, you got to try and find a way to protect them. But at the end, at the end of the day, I don't trust. I don't trust the state to do that. So I'm curious if you have a. Do you have a silver bullet for us on this? <laughs> I wish I did. No, uh, I do not. Um, I would say that I'm starting to become more open to the idea that the argument of a slippery slope is not a fallacious argument, that it's not a fallacy, <laughs> right, to say that it's slippery slope. Because we all know in the 1980s and 90s, I don't know if you grew up then, but if you did, mm -hmm. like I did, you know, we all rolled our eyes when we heard things like, oh, the, you know, gay marriage and normalizing homosexuality is going to lead to them coming after our kids and all of that. And, right. you know, we, we all rolled our eyes and we all said, no, you know, we all have gay friends and family. And, yeah, you know, we just, uh, I think that there is no one could have really foreseen it except for the most hardcore of bigots at the time right. who we, who we all, who are all probably looking back at us now going, yeah. <laughs> they're like, they're like, were we really bigoted or were we, right? <laughs> well, you probably, they probably were bigoted, but the problem, no, they is, were for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. But the, the problem is that, uh, you know, now I've, I'm having this conversation with some of my gay friends and, you know, more and more of them are starting to revolt, but they're doing so quietly. They're not doing it openly because of how, what a dangerous culture we live in where free speech is so chilled because, you know, if you're a part of the LGBT community, because it's been, it's kind of like being in the African-American community. If you come, if you walk out of line, if you get out of line and you don't, you know, sort of toe the ideological line, if you don't vote Democrat and if you don't say the right things, you know, according to what the progressives want you to say, then, you know, they come after you. And so, so I guess, you know, if you're talking about like, where is the line drawn? You know, if somebody whips their dick out at a drag queen story hour and there's a four or five year old child there, that's a sex crime. And it's one that, you know, absolutely should be punishable by the law. That's one where, you know, you take the police, the police officers, in my opinion, whether it's a police officer or whether it's myself using that kind of violence, yeah. That violence, I believe, would be sanctioned in that sense, right? So I'm not an anarchist, which disappoints a lot of people on the anarchist spectrum who like me or are confused because I'm so close to an anarchist that they're like, oh, oh man, Austin's a statist. Um, but I am a statist. I am a, a, a mini statist, right? A minarchist. Sure, sure. And I believe that the state has, I've always believed that the state has uh, a, a role in safeguarding the rights of children when a parent or a guardian is not performing that function. Yeah. So if a parent is starving their child to death, if a parent is abusing their child, then there is a right for a third party to intervene. And if, if that, whether that's a police officer, an agent of the state, or whether that's a third party vigilante acting in such to protect such child, I think that that's, that's morally, a morally legitimate use of force directed at someone who is, if you want to use the non-aggression principle, you know, you know, committing an act, yeah, yeah. committing a, an act against a child that I think is, you know, at minimum indecent, at, at most abusive, or, mm -hmm. and, and definitely, I think it, it weighs towards the latter. So I, I think this entire argument has been the best, the best defense of minarchism I've ever encountered, because I, I do also, I, I mean, I lean anarchist, but this one is very tough for me, because Ultimately, we, we don't have, I mean, we don't have the right. Like, if I were to see someone whip their dick out in front of a child, like, I'm not sure that I wouldn't be the one that gets arrested if I were to actually intervene. And I think mm -hmm. that it's clear that I would be in the moral right. But it's very similar to, you know, in the Black Lives Matter protests, we have an anarcho-tyranny thing going on where if you are protesting on the, the good side of the state, 
you're fine for the most part. And if you are a January 6th protester, you get the book thrown at you and you go away forever. Um, and in that in that circumstance, like, how can I turn to the state knowing that it's as corrupt as it is and say, I want you to protect these kids from puberty blockers? You know, like there is there is a, a real conflict there where it's like, yes, I think that I would personally rather just like societally we rise up and say, this is done. We're not doing this anymore. But as long as we have a state that's as tyrannical as it is, they're probably going to prevent that. So then we have to turn towards the state, which we don't trust, to handle this very complicated issue. I don't know. It's all a mess. I, you know, you, I, a vigilante is not going to get it right 100% of the time. They're, you know, sure. The state is not going to get it right 100% of the time. When you're talking about, you yeah. know, when you're talking about protecting the rights of kids, it's going to be messy. One, you know, almost 100% of the time, it's going to be a problem. You know, and, and people are going to claim that their rights are being violated. Their right to, you know, have autonomy over their child and to be, you know, responsible for the fitness of the child and for protecting the child and for raising the child, which, you know, you know, I think any libertarian, 95, 96% of the time is going to side with the rights of the parent to make the decision for the child. But, you know, what we have here when you talk about cultural degradation is we have a movement, uh, a leftist movement of parents who are in essence acting almost as like some kind of a, of a zombified uh, insect from nature. They are, they are, I guess you could call them the NPCs, right? They sure. are, they are programmed and they are so, uh, they're like cattle or sheep kept in line to enforce the, the cultural norms and morals of our enemies. Mm -hmm. The left, the left will punish any suburban white female who goes outside of the liberal norm or the mainstream, you know, if, if a, if a, if a, you know, Suburban driving soccer mom doesn't vote for Joe Biden, doesn't watch The View, doesn't uh, commit to, you know, if her, if her son, you know, walks down the Barbie aisle to putting him in a dress and committing him to hormone blockers, then she's a bigot and she's a transphobe. And right. So they they're in full. They're enforcing this. Uh, on these women, mostly, I think, because if you've if you've never read the book, Abigail Schreier's book, um, mm -hmm. it's uh, irreversible damage. Yeah. She makes the argument, and I, and I agree with her, that, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, mean girl culture meant that, you know, you couldn't sit with us at the table and, you know, you couldn't go and go to the diner or the sock hop and the girls would enforce that kind of a culture. You know, the 70s and 80s meant something different. In the 90s, it was like, you know, you were either goth or you were, you know, the part mm -hmm. of the pinks and the Heathers or whatever. But but today, Abigail Schreier argues that these girls are enforcing, using social media especially, this kind of a shame and toxic bullying culture and a mental health culture that puts these girls in positions that they where they're either following a fad or they're making these kinds of decisions to self-harm. And they're doing it as part of a of a cultural program that when they're children, they they're very confused. And when they're adults, they're, they do something, they've done something as kids that they're going to look back on and, and they're going to regret, right? You don't allow your kids, you know, at a certain age to go and drive a vehicle. You know, maybe we, libertarians think that 14 is a better age to allow kids to drive sure. or something like that. But is there is there a good age to decide to cut your dick off? I don't think there's a good age maybe ever to do that. Maybe 50 or 60 years old is, <laughs> you know, too young to do something like that. But I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, the problem is, of course, is, you know, how much can you commit to saving someone from themselves, right? Exactly. If, if a young girl is committing self-harm, um, for example, if she is cutting, remember when I, when I was a kid, I remember girls used to go into the bathrooms and they used to cut their arms. And I, part I of the, part, but, but, but a large part of that was a cry for help. Right, so you did, so you didn't go in there and encourage them and say, "Well, cut deeper," you know. <laughs> You're not cutting deep That's enough. That's a great point. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we don't we don't want to encourage them to do that. And we and we all identify. All of us, you like uniformly identified. This is someone who's suffering terribly, and we yes. we need to intervene. We need to help. I mean, we, we didn't necessarily want to call the cops on them, but we certainly wanted to try and get them into counseling or therapy or whatever. And and now we look at it and we go like like you said, go deeper. It's it's just bizarre. Well, we are uh, culture, culturally we are unmoored from base from a base principle, a philosophical principle. I, I think that you know we in the past 
had base sets of philosophical principles that we shared. And I think that a lot of that was enforced through a nation state. I think a lot of that was enforced through through cultural values that came through our government schools, whether we, you know, we just, I, I hate them as much as the next guy. Sure. Uh, but, but um, you know, when you have base sets of, of cultural norms that, that a, a population shares, it, it makes it easier, I think, to act more harm, harmoniously, you yeah. know, you know, and being, you know, being a status like I am, I do think that the concept of, you know, the United States is a, a sweet land of liberty, maybe one that we, we don't live up to, but it should be something that we strive for. But mm -hmm. what we're contending against, what we're really fighting against is, you know, if you want to get technical, you call it postmodernism. Uh, but, you know, we're talking philosophically about people who do not believe in the concept of objective truth. They do not believe in the, the objective sense of uh, sense of reality. If you if nothing is true and everything is what you believe at that moment or at that time, then, you know, really. I mean, I hate to use the word anarchy, but I mean, in a sense, it's it's anything goes. It's it's it, that's why if you if you've seen Matt Walsh talking about his documentary, "What Is a Woman," they can't answer that question, and it, no. that is because they the reason why is because they've got the brain virus. They've got what you know Elon Musk calls the woke mind virus, which has programmed the NPCs into believing that there since there is no objective truth or objective facts, you know it is reality and truth is whatever we claim it is to be at this moment mm -hmm. rather than the fact that we know that a woman is a woman because they either lay eggs or they contain eggs right and can reproduce right whereas the right. you know males are the opposite yeah well i mean thaddeus russell has has done a number on me to the point that i won't flatly condemn postmodernism but i will say that this is a a real world example of the worst aspects of postmodernism, where there is no truth. Reality is whatever you say it is essentially. And, and I think that it, we're paying serious consequences for, from allowing this. I mean, this, you could call it the woke mind virus. You can call it a bunch of things, but it, ultimately it is, it is really making our cohesion as a nation and as a people more broadly just disintegrate. And I, I don't really have an answer uh, other than to, point it out, educate people to what it is. Um, but I think your point about how it's been it's it's been influencing uh, you know young young girls, I think it also it, it has now gotten and it's been it's been such a persistent issue that we now have parents that are in their 20s, some even in their 30s, some even in their 40s that are very much entrenched in this belief system and they are in in fact pushing their kids into you know even if they're not gay or not queer or anything, but just like, just say you are, you know, so that when I go to my, you know, my Sunday tea or whatever with my friends, I could say, yeah, Sally's queer. You know, it's, it's really, it's a, I just never, I just never saw it coming. Can you imagine ha having had a, a, a possible presidential candidate in 2016 who was able to have these kinds of conversations on national TV instead of what that is a limbo? Yes, instead that of... <laughs> would have been lovely. <laughs> I, believe me, I wish that had gone down that way. Well, the you good were guys serious... never win. Yeah, no, no shit. Oh God, it drives me crazy. Anyways, you were you were a very serious contender in 2016, though. Um, as you're well aware, the Mises Caucus took over the Libertarian Party uh, 10 days ago or whatever it was. And uh, I'm just curious to see does that give you additional hope for the Libertarian Party? Uh, are you totally yeah. out? What do you think? Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm out, but I mean, I think that, it, that everybody's made up their mind over there, right? So, like in in regards to my personal, um, you know, uh, involvement with the party, I don't really see a role for myself over there. You know, there are people who do what I do and do it much better, um, and, and you know, I wish them well. I still got a lot of friends over there, and I think sure. it, it, it was exciting for me. I was glad to see it. I mean, come on, you tell me that I'm not going to enjoy watching Nick Sarwark suffer. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, I had a feeling you would enjoy that. Yeah. The pain. I was like, oh, God. The videos of him coming out, him whining about somebody, like body checking him, which didn't happen. You know, and he's like, oh, oh, he's like, oh I'm going to come and sue you and all that stuff. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> it was it was enjoyable. And congratulations to Michael Heiss for, for spearbinding yeah. it, for spearheading it and, and Dave Smith and everybody. And it was cool to see Ron Paul speaking there. And, 
you know, it kind of felt like the old days. I think that, you know, externally on the external side of things, that there are things that the LP can do to change things. And there are things that the LP cannot do to change things. Right. Like I like I do not believe that in 2016 that, you know, the either I or Gary Johnson or Larry Sharp or, you know, whoever, Daryl Perry, whatever, John McAfee would have become president of the United States that year, right? But maybe we could have gotten it down the, further down the line if we'd done this or that or what have you. But the American, the bigger, the reason why Gary Johnson got 3% and Joe Jorgensen got 1% is not as much about what they did as where the American people were at that time. I think so we, too. we We had been crescendoing through what we'd call, you know, the libertarian moment, the New York Times said, and you know, fulminating up to the point of the Rand Paul presidency, and, which really ended when Donald Trump became the nominee for the Republican Party. the 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 Libertarian Party had a, like a like about a two month window, I think it was between or six weeks between when the presidential candidate was nominated and Donald Trump was nominated, to to sort of really like. Essentially, you could have collapsed the Republican Party, from what I understand, because if you had been able to get enough conservatives from the GOP to abandon them because of Donald Trump's behavior, you would have had never Trump conservatives, social conservatives who, who preferred Ted Cruz and were turned off by Trump to sort of collapse it. Now, that might have ended with a Hillary Clinton presidency and who where we'd be today. Who knows? Right. For God's sakes, could have been much worse. Um, sure. who, you know, you got to accept that, contend with that. But um, the reason why the party did so well that year versus 2020, I don't know that it was the messaging so much. It was where the American people were. Uh, from what I've you know understood throughout history, third parties have arisen in popularity about every 30 years in the United States. The American people are sick and tired of whatever their options are, and they pay attention to what's going on in a, in the third party world. That was 2016. You know. I could be wrong, but I mean, it's going to probably be about another 20, 25 years until the American people are interested in that. You know, that might be a good time for this 40, 50, 65 years old I'll be then. That might be a good time to run for president then if you're going to do it as an outsider. But, you know, frankly, I got 25 good years of of planting seeds and growing trees uh, that, you know, I need to be involved in personally. But with the... Um, when it comes to the Republicans, the Republican strategy, what I found is, is that in terms of changing minds, you change a lot more minds within softer minds, right? Within the Libertarian mm -hmm. Party, you're just fighting with people who agree with you. And you're fighting over, you know, sometimes strategies that are grand and sweeping. And well, the, it'll be a big difference between Angela McArdle and Nick Sarwark for sure. Right. But, but for the most part, you're really not fighting over much. You're, it's kind of what we call the narcissism of small differences, where you're fighting to death over, you know, an abortion plank. And, you know, is that going to bring in a lot more people? I really don't think so. Um, and the reason, I've never been a big platform person. I know that there are people who are just platform Nazis. There are libertarian Nazis. And, <laughs> and they think that the platform matters, but it doesn't because the only platform that really matters really deep down is the platform of the candidates and the, you know, the candidates that are running, you know, what is the candidate running on? What is their character? What do they stand for? What do they believe sure. in? That's what people look for when they're going to the, the voting booths. But the American people, I think, aren't interested in libertarianism writ large as it is right now. Um, I wish they were. Um, I'm working to change that. But my biggest problem with the libertarians, specifically the party, is that they're not willing to meet the American people where they're at. Yeah. And I, I will always say where I want to go and where I want to be and how I, you know, that I want to end the Fed. But here is my plan to get there. And that is, I think, always been our greatest weakness is like we will flippantly casually dismiss anybody who asks us questions about the practical steps that are necessary to move forward and advance liberty. I think the Mises caucus takeover is great. I think it's exciting. But what I would be really curious to see is, are they willing to not have this ideological struggle within libertarianism, but are they willing to contend with where the American people are at, not castigate them, not look down on them, not call them names, you know, sheep or sheeple or, or anything like that, but really go out in the community and be like, what am I going to do to make my community better? How can my ideals be used to 
uh, to add value to my community so that I suddenly am looked at in my community as someone who has th that they will have trust in, that they will have faith in, because they're going to vote for somebody. And if you want it to be you, you're going to be labeled, you're going to be given the, the power. If you're, if you're given the ring of power in your community, if you're a alderman or if you're the, you know, a mayor or if you, be, you know, become an elected official, you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to spend money on a sewer system that your town probably needs. And, it, you know, are you going to vote to spend more taxpayer funds? How are you going to do something like that? Are you going to actually be able to bring your principles to bear when it comes to building a sewer in your community? Those are the questions that I think the libertarians are really, those are the biggest challenge. Who will build the sewers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've always been fighting over the roads, but it was the sewers we should have been focused on. It was under the roads. The <laughs> yeah, well, I... I I tend to agree with you. I mean, obviously, I, I am guilty myself of referring to people as normies or sheep or whatever. Um, <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, it's I try not to do it when I'm speaking to someone that I think has an open mind. I, I, I more have an antagonistic approach when I'm dealing with, you know, someone online who's being irritating. And, um, I get but, it. Muggles. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, do, I do think that it's important that we realize, you know, we aren't the dominant philosophy. We're we're terribly misunderstood and we don't do ourselves any benefit by just running over somebody because they go, Hey, I've paid into social security for the past 30 years. And you guys talk about ending it. Uh, shouldn't I get, you know, some ROI on all that money that they stole from me. And then some libertarians will be like, fuck you, <laughs> you know, like status. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm well, like, no, that's a fair question. Yeah. That's well, maybe, totally and, and maybe a good answer to that is, well, you know, if you've got more than a million dollars in the bank, maybe not. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, if we want to make it solvent, if, you know, if you're a multi multi-millionaire, then, you know, maybe it needs to be, you know, means tested in a sense, like yeah. for, based or, on or, your, phased, your... or phased out for those that haven't been paid at paid in, then you don't get paid anything at the end of the day. You got to rely on yourself. Yes. Start I at mean... 18 years old and they are not paying into it anymore. And, you know, maybe if you want to make them do anything, you know, then they have to invest in like a private uh, fund that they can pull out of, you know, or something like that. Sure. I don't know. So, I mean, that's, that's meeting them where they're at. But I mean, the, the problem of course, is that we love to fight and I love to fight. I loved, I love, I'm a good fighter too, man. I am, yeah. I'm, whether it's fisticuffs like for real or whether it's, you know, ideologically, I love to fight. So I'm looking for a fight and the only people who want to fight and the only people who can match us are people who spend all their time either reading communist literature or conservative literature or libertarian literature. But the real fight is out there with people who don't want to fight, who are open-minded mm. and are going to be like, hey, so I hear you're into politics or you do, you know, libertarian stuff. And it's like, well, I'm going to start a fight with you, but they're like, they're like you say, normies. Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, what you need to do is to be a good example to them and to, you know, be a good neighbor to them and to be that way, you know, people will look at you as a leader and they, they might adopt your values because they look up to you, you know? Totally. And I I've told people this many times, but uh, I've converted the vast majority of people in my life because they've seen me succeed. Like that is a meaningful thing. And, and libertarians by and large, do not implement their ideas in a way that actually benefits them financially or relationship wise or anything like that. And, and as long as you're not appearing to be benefiting from your own ideology, why the fuck would anyone listen to oh, what you have great. to say? That's a, that's a really good point, Clint. And uh, it's, uh, that was something that I kind of got in trouble with in the beginning because I did, <gasps> I, I think I coined the term povertarians. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's like, you, if you don't have money, you can't do much in politics. No. There's not a lot, you know, like we're not socialists. We're not leftists there. You know, we, you know, they have to make up for it in blood, but we should make up what, what they have in blood and flesh and blood. We should make up for in cash, because mm. if we're going to be a smaller movement and we're going to be pro capitalist, then yeah, we need to get out there and we need to make money. And I've never been ashamed of making money. I think there's a difference between, you know, making money on your ideas legitimately and being a grifter. Right. You know, and, and there certainly are absolutely people out there who are grifters, you yes, know, I, I, you know, I, I, I started up a, um, uh, a shop, like a libertarian, like merchandising shop about a month ago. And I, I, I was waiting for the grifter accusations to come in, but then it was like, you know, what I realized was, is that since I had focused so much on like really adding value and like creating things that people really, really enjoyed, cause I was doing it for fun, for things that I really liked, you know, you're, 
you, as long as you're providing value to, to other people for what you're getting, then even if somebody calls you a grifter, who gives a shit? Because the people, the customers that you're serving are, are happy. And that's exactly. really what, that's really what matters. But yes, you know, not being a broke bitch is, is it's, <laughs> it's important. You know, I was reading something though, or listening to something though Bishop had posted the other day sure. about like how important it's going to be for us to make millionaire allies. I mean, look at what the national conservatives are doing. Look at what, um, the people like Blake Masters and others are doing. The people who despise libertarians in the Republican Party, the 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 populist movement, the people who really look down on us and and want to see us, you know, stricken from this earth. They blame us for the drag queen story hours. Um, mm -hmm. They've got backer J.D. Vance in Ohio, Peter Thiel, right? Millions of dollars, right? They have all of this money that they're pouring into their movement, and they're succeeding because they have millions of dollars being poured into the movement. It's going to be really important for us to, you know, find them sugar daddies. And if not, if not find them sugar daddies and sugar mamas, then we need to be those sugar daddies and should be, be those sugar mamas. Exactly. And, and, and we need to support those young people who are coming up in the ranks, you know, who want to go to the LP convention, who want to go to the Republican convention, totally. and do, donate to them and help them and use those funds politically to advance our cause. Cause the left is doing it. Oh yeah, the, the left is doing it. Um, I see a lack of good websites of libertarian mm. websites. I I definitely saw a lack of good libertarian merchandise. Fucking everybody is putting those stupid porcupine on everything, and it's just like so boring, so crap. <laughs> you know, you're gonna have to. I had to. I didn't want to, but I started a TikTok. You know, we we've, we've got to tap into the mainstream culture. We've got to you know be good listeners. Mm -hmm. And you know, see what people are doing, and mimic it, and and copy it, and make it libertarian. If something's popular, grab it, remix it, make a libertarian version of it. Right? Totally. That's what, so you know, but that's play that's, the play the culture game. Play the culture <laughs> game. I I do. I used to when I was you know, young libertarian, be like the only culture. It doesn't matter. What all that matters is the government policies and all this kind of stuff. But I. I've changed my mind. I think the yeah. culture matters very much. How people feel about something matters just as much, if not more, than the facts. Yeah, no, yeah, we found that out the hard way over the past two years. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm wearing a shirt from Liberty Tree, which is you know rooftop Korean. This is nice. like this is a conversation starter. My boy Top Lobster is probably the preeminent artist in this arena now, and and he does really cool. Uh, artwork that that actually can start a conversation but more importantly it's it in group signals like it's a, it's allowing people to go like oh i listen to that show like i know that you're my people all already so it's uh it's it's definitely something that we've we have not done well on and i think i i i have to point out that i think it correlates to the proclivity to autism that we have in this community like i'm not sure that autists are great at at creating artwork i don't know if that's true or not but it just it just seems as if that hasn't been our strong point so anyway that's a I, good point yeah thank yeah, you I, for that thank you for the interview clint i really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you man this was great absolutely i i just wanted to get out of here on this do you think john mcafee killed himself yes I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah i do yeah i know that that's a disappointing thing for someone to say but um i think that you know he probably really loved relish the idea that people would he was such a conspiracy guy i love right. john and yeah, of course. I, I just i just i i think i knew, knew him maybe a little better than most and um and i think that he probably you know he he knew what the feds were going to do to him if they brought him back mm -hmm. to the united states same thing that they're that they would do to edward snowden same thing they're gonna do to julian assange yeah. they are gonna you know with the United States has shown they have no problem torturing. They have no problem what they do, they've done to the January 6 protesters. They have no problem holding people illegally in detention, prolonged detention without trial. They have no problem, you know, you doing awful, evil things. I think McAfee realized that he was not going to get a better deal in American prisons than he got in Catalonia, and that you know, at the end of his life, maybe faced with some health complications anyway, he had done it all. He'd seen it all. He had smoked it all. He had snorted it all. And I, I think that he loved the idea that, that people would think that, you know, that the feds did it because hostility yeah. towards the feds. If he could engender more hostility against the feds with his death, then I think that that would have been a good thing for him. And, and I applaud him for it. But um, I miss him. I love that. Yeah, of course. That, I just uh, that that is kind of a beautiful way for a guy like that to go out planting mm -hmm. one more conspiracy theory seed on his way out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, go ahead and tell people how they can follow you. 
Well, so my little screen name down there, AP for Liberty, you can find that pretty much everywhere, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and my newly launched store is just the APforLibertyShop.com. Excellent. Appreciate your time. Was I lying? Double dip. Awesomeness. Uh, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. It means the world to me. I can't believe I get to interview my heroes like this. It's just the thrill of my life, and it's all because of you guys. If you want to support my work, believe it or not, I am putting a lot of capital into marketing this show. I am trying to grow it as rapidly as possible because I don't feel like I have a lot of time. But I also don't want to come out of pocket for it because I'm putting a hell of a lot of work into this. So if you want to help me out to grow the show, to get it to more people, you can do so by going to libertylockdown.locals.com. $5 a month, 10, 20, whatever you want to whatever, whatever you want to contribute. It enables me to put additional capital into both marketing on other shows, but also traveling around and meeting people and like actually telling them about the show in person. Um, I hope to eventually, probably a year from now, uh, be building a professional studio for in-person interviews, a la, you know, Joe Rogan, Tim Pool, that whole thing. So if you want to help in that process, I don't know if I'll, I'll come up with some sort of like, like, you know, crowdsourced thank you thing. Like maybe I make like a wall out of bricks of like the biggest contributors or something. Let me know if you think that'd be a cool idea. Cause then you could actually like, imagine if your name was sitting permanently in the wall behind the guests of Tim pool or Tim cast IRL every night. That'd be pretty cool. Right? Well, you're betting on me to see if you can then have your name sit there forever. That's kind of a cool idea. I literally just came up with that on the fly. I don't know if it's that brilliant, but I'm impressed with myself because you know, I'm a narcissist. Anyways, love you guys. I'll uh, see you at Porkfest. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppening. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now nah, I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copied the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic and rip a 59 Miles to ratio that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rocks steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe